Good evening. I'm going to have to tell you, I feel like I'm the most blessed man who gets to preach for a living that there is. To have, I, it's just hard to fathom what great co-workers the Lord has blessed me with. I listened to Hiram this morning and I just thought, he's, he's my favorite preacher, I, I want you to know that. And I, I grow so much, I learn so much every time that he stands and, and preaches God's word. And we are so blessed to have David Chang. He is so multi-talented and he does so much, is already doing so much for a young man of 23. Uh, and so it is just a privilege for us to have such wonderful men who are here working with us. Kip Kino might be known to you as an individual. We're going to kill that. I don't know what I gave you, but that's not tonight's lesson. So, But... Kip Kino was a gold medal Olympics runner in the 1968 and the 1972 Olympics. But he is probably better known to us, not for that Hall of Fame running career, but instead for the humanitarian work that he did. In 1972, he and his wife began this idea that they had in their mind that they were going to find the most indigent, the most needy children in all of Kenya. Children that needed 24-hour care, and they were going to adopt them. Well, their ambitious goal when they started in 72 was that they could have 25, 25 children they would adopt. In 50 years of doing it, they have adopted thousands of children. Not only that, but so many of those children have gone on to become doctors and accountants and police officers and college graduates. In the process of their work, they also started a primary school to aid in the work that they were doing. Then they added to that, they built a high school for children, their children, and for others who had that same need. And then a training center for the the neediest children to thrive and succeed. It might not surprise you to know that Kaino lost his mother at the age of three and was orphaned. And so he felt connected to these children. But he did not want those children to ever have to go through what he was going through. And so he provided this so that they could have so much more than he felt like that he had when he was in their shoes. In the Iliad, Homer uses a word to describe an individual who outthrew his competitor with the spear. And the word that he used was to cast beyond. That word that he used in the Iliad is a word that is found in your New Testament five times. Paul, with the the vast background, the cosmopolitan man that he was, he uh, had the grasp of that word and he uses it. He uses it twice in 2 Corinthians and he uses it three times in the book of Ephesians. Now, depending on the translation that you have, when you see that word, the word that you see is the word surpass. And it means extraordinary. It means to go far beyond. And the Apostle Paul uses that in every instance to describe the work of God in this world. That what God does in our world is something that goes so far beyond what we might expect, what we might think would be the case. I want you to think for just a moment about that. God has equipped the human body so that we need food. But He didn't have to make the food so delicious. When you think about the fact that God gave us a place where we could live, that He gave us this planet, 
But even in a fallen world, I want you to think about the mountains and the oceans and the skies and how extraordinary they are for us to behold. God made us male and female at the beginning, but he did not have to make marriage and child rearing so extraordinary. The Apostle Paul is writing to encourage people who had to do on their Mondays through Saturdays exactly what you and I have to do. We have to leave the safe haven of being here where we feel such security, where we feel such strength that we draw from one another. But we got to go out into a world where we feel like such a vast minority, where we feel like we don't have so much compared to what's around us. We don't have the resources. We don't have the voice. And yet, the Apostle Paul is writing to a people who had the same kind of feeling. They lived in the midst of a Roman Empire. An empire that had all but silenced their voices in the public square. And yet, Paul wanted them to realize what kind of a God that they have. I want you to think about what Paul says about our surpassing God. A God that exceeds our expectations. The first thing I'd like for you to notice with me tonight is that our God is a God of surpassing power. Surpassing power. You'll notice that in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19. Philo, the Jewish philosopher, wrote about Moses and his work among the children of Israel. And he uses a phrase to describe his work. His work in leading the children of Israel out of the Exodus. His work that he did in the leading the children of Israel through the wilderness. His work in the government and in the education of his people. And the word that Moses used on that occasion is the same exact word that the Apostle Paul uses, surpassing power to describe the work that God does in his prayer in Ephesians 1 and verse 19. The Apostle Paul points the children, and he felt like that the Christians at Ephesus did not have a grasp of this. That maybe they felt like that they did not have access to that power. And so Paul prays in his prayer in Ephesians 1.18 that the eyes of their heart might be enlightened so that they could see, really see, the power they had access to. In fact, you'll look through Ephesians and you'll find the Apostle Paul talking about the power that God intends for Christians to have. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 21, it is a power that was greater than any power that was and that might exist. In Ephesians 3 and verse 7, it was a power that was at work in God's children. It was a power. It's a power that's at work in us through the the strength that we're given through the inner man, the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16. And it's a power that's at work in us. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. The apostle Paul wanted them to know that they had this access. So why did Paul feel the need to tell the Ephesians that? Because they felt powerless. They felt like they had no voice. They felt like they had no place In their society, they felt as if they were cast to the side. But Paul says, this is what you have access to. Did they value that? Paul wanted them to. A few years ago, there was a little boy in Union City, California, who'd been watching Finding Nemo. And inspired by that movie, he went into his mother's treasure chest and took out the family's priceless heirloom, a diamond sapphire ring that had been passed down by the great-great-grandfather to that mother. And he took that ring, and he took it to the toilet, and he flushed it away. It took plumbers, plumbers tried for weeks, couldn't find it, 
took two sanitation workers in their tireless efforts over a course of a couple of months until finally a third of a mile away from the house, feet away from a larger sewer in which it would have been gone forever, they retrieved that ring. Does it surprise you? Yes, maybe he needed a spanking, but does it surprise you that he threw that ring down the toilet? He didn't know any better. He couldn't apprise its value. Apostle Paul says, don't do that with the power that you have access to. In a world that doesn't believe that you have any power at all, that tries to resist you, you need to realize what great power you have to live in this world through the resources that we'll talk about in just a moment. Some years ago at the Tournament of Roses parade, there was a beautiful float going along like all the others, but then it began to sputter and then to stall, and they found out that it had run out of gas, and it kept, it held up the entire procession until somebody could go get a can of gas and bring it back and refuel that float. The interesting thing is that that float belonged to Standard Oil Company with all of their vast resources, and they didn't even have gas in their own tank. The Apostle Paul says the opposition that you face and the worldly powers that are out there, there is nothing that can stand against you because God is on your side. It won't overcome you. I love Paul was speaking at the very heart of the beast in the church at Rome in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. You're familiar with those words. If God be for us, who can be against us? God that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? When we think about the power that we have, whether it's the love of God or the love of Christ, we realize that there's nothing that can overcome the power that we have with our God. Our God is a God of surpassing power. But if we turn and look a little later on in this epistle... We find the Apostle Paul again talking about our God. And he tells us that our God is a God of surpassing riches. Now as we look at this, I don't want to re-preach the sermon from this morning in the part that Hiram pointed us out to, but this is found in that section. And he pointed out how rich God's mercy is and His kindness toward us. We realize that there is a, an idea here of riches. And the word that's translated riches means treasure that surpasses the norm of a society. To put that in perspective, 99%, the bottom 99% of all workers in the United States, if you take all the salaries of all of those people combined, it averages out to $50,000 a year. The top 1% makes 26.3 times more. 1.3 million dollars a year. Statistically speaking, almost none of us are in that top percent. But when we think about the riches that we have access to, that we looked at and we reflected on this morning, the overwhelming majority of this world does not have access to that. It's not because God doesn't want them to have it, because God wants them to have access to those the riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But the world doesn't want it. It doesn't appreciate the value that He has for us. When you read through the book of Ephesians and you look at all the spiritual blessings that God gives us in Christ... There's so many that we can enumerate, but it all boils down to His grace and His forgiveness. I don't know how you see yourself tonight. Do you see yourself as poor or struggling? 
or in the, the classic sense of the word, middle of the road, when it comes to resources. Certainly, if we compare ourselves to the rest of the world, we realize that we're doing so much better than others. But spiritually, where do you see yourself? Do you realize that we're in that overwhelming minority of, of people to whom God has given us His surpassing riches in His grace and His forgiveness through Jesus Christ? I appreciate Todd reading Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14. Interesting note is that if you read that in the Greek, that's one long sentence. It is the longest sentence in the New Testament. Twelve verses in your English Bible, but you wade through and what is the purpose, what is the meaning that Paul is trying to convey in that lengthy the sentence in Ephesians 1? It's found in the... Subject and the verb and the direct object of Ephesians 1 and verse 4. That entire sentence is about Him choosing us. Now He tells us where He chooses us. He chooses us in Him. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. He chooses us to be holy and blameless. That is, to live transformed lives so that we can impact this world with the impact that He's made on us. But He also has chosen us to the praise of His glory. A very enigmatic uh, phrase there in verse 6 and again in verse 12 and verse 14. But here's the point of that. That we are in a position to be that which causes God to be glorified. That when He looks at our lives and what we do, we are to the praise of Of His glory. Let me tell you there's something else. That I believe that we can see in Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 3 through 14. He chose us. And there's an idea. You'll find the word from the word family translated inheritance. Three times in this paragraph. You'll find it in verse 11. In verse 14 and verse 18. Now depending on your translation. You might have it saying that we have obtained an inheritance. I believe that perhaps it's more compelling for us to translate that, that we are made a heritage. Whose heritage? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. Now, in verse 14, you'll notice that there is a down payment on our redemption. Of, and we have a, a, a possession, we have an inheritance that's awaiting us when that redemption comes. When God redeems us. And then in verse 18 you'll notice that we are the inheritance of God. Ephesians makes the point that we have all of these riches available to us. That we have access to everything that God is going to give on this earth in Christ. That's why you'll find the phrase in Christ ten times in this chapter, twenty-one times in this epistle, that it makes all the difference in the world being in Christ. We stand to gain so much ultimately. But maybe here's not something that you've considered. Do you know that God has an inheritance that He's looking to redeem? That God stands to gain a treasure someday. It's going to require a death. It's going to require our passing from this life into eternity. But do you realize the Apostle Paul is saying throughout that first chapter that we are God's treasure? I may have mentioned this before that my dad says I'll never be rich by earthly standards. But he always said with regard to my brother and my sister and I, he said, you're my treasure. And what a beautiful thought. It makes us feel valuable. But do you hear what Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus? You are my treasure. 
of all that there is, you think about the most priceless, valuable things in this world and the price tag that we put upon it. God says it's nothing. You take it all together. You take the universe that I've made. It's nothing. You're what I value and what I treasure. Nothing above that. But we also have a God who gives us access to those surpassing riches of His grace and His forgiveness. What a beautiful exchange. That God says, I'm so valuable to you, but you're so valuable to me. But I also want you to notice that he rounds this out in the third chapter when he prays another prayer. In that first half of that letter, he prays two of his longest prayers in all of his epistles. It's like the Apostle Paul can't get very far before he is driven to his knees. And keep in mind that what's in the prayers is always what's important to the letter. And so as Paul is beginning to transition from the first part of that letter to the second part of that letter, he wants us to know that our God is a God of surpassing love. In chapter 3 and verse 19, and there's a couple of ways in which he demonstrates that. It's the way that his love impacts our lives. In in, in chapter 3 and verse 16, in the middle of that prayer, it impacts our lives because it fills us with strength. But this love that He gives to us is also that which is beyond all that we can ask or think. But then there's also the ways that He describes it. He says that first of all, this love firmly roots you and grounds you. See, here's what Paul is doing. He's, not, he's known to mix metaphors. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and he goes from one thing to the next. That's what he's doing here. He says, I want you to conceive of the love of Christ and the love of God that it is that which gives roots to your life. You're not going to get blown around by the opposition and the concerns of this life when you're rooted in the love of God. As you keep yourselves, as Jude said, in the love of God, you have these roots that go downward, but it's also that which you're built upon. He uses the, the picture of a foundation. The love of God is under our lives, and it holds us up. Keeps me grounded, holds me up. But then he mentions its breadth and its length and its height and its depth. Think about the breadth of the love of God. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what your nationality. It extends to every nation, whoever you are. Matthew 28 and verse 19. And look at its length. Its length is that it will go until the end of time. This love of God will never end in this side of time. But then we also see that the height of His love reaches all the way into His throne room. You know, when I think about Hebrews 4.15, that we have a high priest in Jesus who has been through everything that we've been through. He's been tempted like we have, and yet without sin, it's what gives us boldness and access to go into the very throne room of God and petition Him. I hope you take advantage of that boldness as often as you can. To be able to go and to say, you've given me permission to come into the presence of the great I Am. You see in the Bible all the reverence and the reverence that we give, but the access that we have. And then it's depth. It reaches to the most depraved sinner. It's also that which is beyond comprehension. We sing about it. Don't you love to sing about the love of God? We pray about it. We preach about it. We try to grasp it and understand it, but we'll never fully get the depths of the love of God. A perfect God for imperfect creation who would do as much as He did in giving His Son. But it also is that which is completely fulfilling. 
We may not fully understand it, but it is the way to satisfaction in this life. You won't find it anywhere else. You think about in 2021, people are looking everywhere to fill the hole and the void in their lives. They can't find it anywhere else. Interesting to me that as you divide that letter of Ephesians into two parts, in the first half of the letter, Paul is pounding on the idea of how much God loves us. Get it, grasp it, own it. But then in the second half of the letter, he wants us to grasp how much that we need to love each other. People aren't going to find it anywhere else through anything else. But as soon as they come among us, they should see it immediately. It's what Jesus was saying, wasn't it? In John 13 and verse 35, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. By the love that you have for one another. Many are your wondrous works, oh God. And and your thoughts toward us. To speak of them and to declare them. There's none like you. They're too numerous to count. Psalm 40 and verse 5. We love a good love story, don't we? Edward VII of England. He abdicated the throne to marry an American commoner, a woman by the name of Mrs. Wallace Simpson. But if you look a little deeper into that story, it's not quite the romantic, sacrificial story that we thought it was. In fact, it was so scandalous that nearly all the British uh, cabinet resigned. You see, Miss Wallace Simpson, and again, this was back in the 1930s, 1936, she had been divorced and was married to another man when she met and was smitten by King Edward VII, a notorious womanizer. kind of takes a little of the luster off the story when you look a little deeper, doesn't it? But when you look at the story of our king, and you realize the sacrifice that he made, and he did it for the one that he loved, there's no scandalous backstory. Instead, Jesus could say of himself when he said, Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Of all people on this earth, nobody should be walking around tomorrow with their heads held higher, not in arrogance, but in confidence. Because of the God that we have. He is a God that goes beyond our expectations. He is surpassing. He is extraordinary. He is a God of extraordinary power. He's a God who has extraordinary riches and who sees us as His riches. And He is a God of surpassing love. That he wishes to give to the vilest of the vile, the lowest of the low who come to him. I find it very interesting that the Bible is full of contrast and choices. Joshua, at the end of his conquest, would stand before the people as they had gotten their inheritance and they were to move forward boldly. He says, you've got to make a choice between the gods of this world and the God of heaven. Jesus, in the greatest sermon ever preached in Matthew 6, 24, says it's a choice between God and and stuff. And in 1 John 2, verse 15 through 17, John says, This present world are all that God has to give you, your Father, in eternal life. And so the Bible tells us over and over again, you've got to deliberate and you've got to decide. But as Elijah said up on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18, 21, not much of a choice, is it? How long do you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow Him. If Baal is God, then follow Him. God wants it to resonate in our hearts. This choice, the choice to plug into the power and to embrace the riches and the love of God. It's exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. 
when faced with the greatness of our God, it will cause us, it will motivate us to come to Him. It will strengthen us as we strive to live for Him this week. Tonight it may be that you've not yet made that great decision. We would love to help you. Maybe you've been thinking about that, ready to make that decision. There's no better time than now to accept the love and the grace of our Lord by acting on your faith in Jesus as the Son of God. If you're ready to repent and be baptized as they did on the day of Pentecost, we're ready to help you. And if you're a child of God who is struggling, feeling helpless and alone in this world, realize that you have the support of your family and you have the God that we've described tonight. If you need to pray for forgiveness, if you need prayers for help and strength, won't you come right now as together we stand and sing.